Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day and for your grace and mercy that are new every day. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning and throughout this day and bless us by means of your word and your personal care. I especially ask for your anointing this morning as we continue our discussion of the Reformation and its meaning for our time. Bless everyone that's here according to their need. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I guess I've reached that stage in life when it's easier to sit down <coughs> while I'm talking than stand. But who knows? When we ended our session yesterday, I asked a couple of questions. Why did God choose the period in world history known as the Middle Ages or sometimes the Dark Ages or sometimes the medieval period? Why did he choose that time for the great event of the Reformation to begin? And why did he choose the man by the name of Martin Luther to light the spark? So we're going to talk about that a little bit. The, the title of today's presentation is The Times. It's hard to imagine what the world was like and what life for the average person was like 500 years ago. That's one reason why I was looking forward to doing the research for this seminar to expose myself to what things were like back then. So that's what we're going to start with this morning. What was it about that time, that period, that in God's timing made what we call the Reformation not only necessary, but inevitable and possible? There is so much historical material, as you can imagine. So we can only summarize and mention a few highlights to help you get a picture in your mind of what life was like in those days. You and I live at a time when the world has been getting smaller and smaller, at least in our perception. For example, you can leave the airport 
in Ironwood, Michigan, <coughs> where, near where I live, early in the morning, and you can land in Manila in the Philippines by nightfall. That's halfway around the world. And if you do that, I could send an email message to you on my iPad that would get there in an instant, long before you would even arrive in Manila. Five hundred years ago, the world was a great unknown to most people. My wife tells me a little story. She was amazed. She was with a group of ladies, and uh, somebody had mentioned a fig tree. And she said, uh, I don't even know what a fig tree looks like. What is it? Anybody know what it looks like? Yes. And one of the ladies took out her smartphone. <laughs> Here. There's a fig tree. <laughs> well, way back then, people had little contact beyond their immediate neighbors. A hundred miles was a long distance. From where I live, it's 500 miles to this campground. Exactly. And I'm still in the state of Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> it takes us six hours to drive from our house to the bridge. And another four hours from the bridge to Edmore. Ten hour drive. So... 100 miles was a long way in those days, especially when you had to travel by foot or on horseback. When Luther was living in a, a monastery, he made a pilgrimage from Saxony in Germany in the year 1511 to the city of Rome in Italy. He was 28 years old when he did that. And that was a long distance. That was much further than 100 miles. How did he get there? Did he take a train or a jet passenger uh, airplane? No. Those kind of things weren't even dreamed of in those days. And it's a long way off even today. You want to go to Rome, you have to take an airplane, and it's a long trip. Anyway, he walked. Yeah. Yes. Huh. That was a long way, right through the Alps, yes. a long way from Saxony to Rome. 
One reason that time was called the Middle Ages is because a new age was dawning. Looking back, historians looking back, they gave it the title of the Middle Ages. It was a transitional period. It came in the middle of paganism and, quote, civilization. So a new age was dawning, and it's also called the Renaissance. Life was changing dramatically. It was an age of discovery. In 1492, Columbus sailed west and discovered the new world. Interesting how it's referred to as the new world. And that, of course, was a major event in world history. Every child in school learns about Columbus and the discovery of the new world. And people began to realize, hey, the world is much larger than we ever imagined. And it was also an age of invention. For example, the invention of the telescope changed the whole conception of the universe for people. And a man by the name of Copernicus, using that instrument, came up with the idea that the Earth was no longer believed to be the center of the universe. It was a planet that moved around the sun. The sun is the center of the known universe, not the earth. That was amazing discovery. The invention of gunpowder, gunpowder changed the whole method of warfare and the impact of that, just the invention of gunpowder, can be compared with the invention of atomic weapons in the 20th century. Also, old certainties began to be doubted people began to question things, spiritual things as well as physical things. And along with that, there was a search for beauty and truth that began. And that produced people like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, great medieval artists. You can still see some of their works in some of the great museums like the Louvre in Paris. I was thrilled to go there and stand in front of the Mona Lisa. Michelangelo's statue of David. Marvelous. A study of the ancient Greek classics began. 
people began, the intellectuals began to look into the past. And out of that, a spirit of criticism began to emerge that, that could not be contained. Everything was looked at skeptically. And then there was the invention of paper. You know, we take that so much for granted today. It's We do everything with paper. We write on it, we blow our noses in it. <coughs> but can you imagine what that was like? The invention of paper? Up until then it was scrolls made out of sometimes animal skins. And that was followed by one of the greatest inventions ever known movable type and printing. In 1456, just a century before the, almost a century before the Reformation, John Gutenberg printed the first Bible in Latin. And that was a revolutionary event. Because now, for the first time, the average person had access to the Word of God. And a lot of folks didn't know how to read, and they desperately wanted to read the Scriptures, so they had to learn to read. So the Bible was not only a great spiritual instrument, but an intellectual one. They could read it and interpret it for themselves. And that, by the way, was a, a bother to the church. Troublesome. So a new age had begun to dawn. It had a powerful intellectual and spiritual impact on just about everybody. So the Middle Ages was a time of great upheaval in many ways. A new age had dawned. The known world had gone through the time that was depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together, Daniel says, was broken in pieces, disintegration, that's what that means, Daniel 2, verse 35, and after the legs of iron, which was the Roman Empire, you know, after the legs of iron had fallen and there was disorder and fragmentation, in Europe, centuries of confusion and a painful search for stability followed that. And later, the Emperor Charlemagne 
had set up a new empire on the Roman model, and his greatest conquest was against the Saxon tribes of Europe in the area that eventually became known as Germany. Charlemagne was determined to destroy paganism. And his empire set up very harsh laws against people who refused to be baptized. Because by that time, the Roman Catholic Church was the primary enforcer of laws like that. There was none of what we know today as the separation of church and state. There was instead a union in which the religious authorities used the secular power to enforce its decrees. But Charlemagne's attempt to destroy paganism failed. And a new system emerged that, that historians call feudalism. And by the 11th century, new political kingdoms began to appear, just like Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream prophesied. And during the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, tribes who were largely identified by language began to unite as what were called nation states, such as Germany and France and Switzerland and Austria and England and Italy and Spain, etc. And along with this, what had been the largely agrarian economy that is based on farming gave way to trade, towns began to grow, large cities began to develop, money began to become the medium of, of exchange. Up until that time, it was barter. You know, you could go to a market and, and what did they call that? There's another word I can't think of. Pardon? Commerce. Yeah, commerce. But I mean that exchange between people, you know. We did a little bit, bit of that when we were in the Philippines and went to the marketplace. Pardon? Barter. It's not the word I want. I can't come up with it. So anyway, uh, 
my wife and I would go to the market and we would dicker. That's the word I want. Dicker. And I remember one of the Filipino men who was dealing with us. He said, uh, Why you dicker? You rich. You American. <laughs> so as, mo as far as most of the people were concerned, life was very hard. Most of them did not own the land that they lived on. Famines were common. Men and women worked long hours in the fields. They lived in small cottages. This was interesting to discover. With mud walls and thatched roofs. They burned a fire in the middle of the house, in the middle of the floor both for heat and for cooking, and the smoke went out through a hole in the roof. I wonder what happened when it rained. <laughs> Their windows had no glass, and they, they would stuff the windows with straw in the winter, keep the heat in. Nobody was clean by our standards today. You know, there was no indoor plumbing. You had to dig a well with a shovel. They didn't have well diggers like we have today. You can drill a hole. Like at our house, our well is 280 feet. And 200 of that is in solid rock. And to drill through that rock and then, what do they call that? Fraction? Fracking? Where you had to pump high pressure air down there to break the rock and split the rock <coughs> so that the water could come into the well. They didn't have that. So, you know, when, if they had a water source, you had to, had to go and carry it in a bucket to your house. They had meager furniture. The bed was a pile of straw, sometimes big enough for the whole family to sleep. Sanitation was virtually non-existent. The streets were filled with garbage and animal manure and a lot of human manure. Food was scarce. The diet was mostly porridge. What is that? Like oatmeal? Like oatmeal. I can't stand oatmeal. Makes me gag. But the diet was mostly porridge and cheese and soup and pork. 
and life expectancy was very short. The, I think the average life expectancy was around 40 years. And you can imagine that infant mortality was, was very high. And so the idea prevailed among people that the peasants were supposed to spend their lives working for the nobility. Some of the nobility were kind people, but a lot of others were merciless in the way they treated their peasant employees. And so in Germany, there was a lot of discontent. There was a lot of class hatred. And there was undercurrents of revolt always going on. Now, Luther was born of that class, the peasant class. His father, whose name was Hans, grew up on a farm, but later in life he became a miner. And like I mentioned yesterday, his ambition for his son was that he would become an attorney and move from the peasant class to a higher class, a more wealthy class of society. Hans Luther was a, a rugged man. He was rough, but he was devout. He was a sincere Catholic Christian. But old German paganism was somehow blended with their, with their beliefs. For example, they, they believed that elves, fairies, witches were everywhere. Evil spirits were, were the cause of storms and floods and pestilence and sickness. There was a lot of superstition. You can imagine that. And one day in July, in 1505, a young lad by the name of Martin Luther was walking along a road when suddenly the sky darkened and he was stunned by a crashing storm. And a bolt of lightning actually struck him down. And as that happened, he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. So the man who later in life repudiated the monastery, or saintly saints, repudiated saints, as a young boy called on one to help him in a moment of crisis. And the man who later would repudiate monasticism 
promised Saint Anne that he would become a monk if she would help him. So that loyal son of the Roman Church later shattered its very structure and he even identified the popes with Antichrist. And as far as most people were concerned, the church was the stabilizing force in that time of great upheaval and change. And so the church became the absolute judge of human destiny, everybody believed. Now, can you imagine the kind of control that those kind of beliefs, pagan beliefs mixed with Christian beliefs, can you imagine the kind of control that that gave over the Roman Church of the Middle Ages? But the church had become corrupt. How did that happen? Between the time of the apostles and the early church and that of the Middle Ages, or also called the Dark Ages. How did that happen? Listen to this. It's a rather lengthy quote from Great Controversy, page 49 and 50. She says, almost imperceptibly, you remember I said I've always been fascinated by her choice of language. She captures the essence of things. Almost imperceptibly, the customs of heathenism found their way into the Christian church. The spirit of compromise and conformity was constrained or restrained for a time by the fierce persecutions which the church endured under paganism. But as persecutions ceased and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, she, that is the church, laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers and in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and tradition. The nominal conversion of Constantine, the emperor, caused great rejoicing. And the world, cloaked with a form of righteousness, walked into the church. Notice, the world walked into the church. Now, the work of corruption 
rapidly progressed. Paganism, while appearing to be vanquished, became the conqueror. Her spirit controlled the church. The spirit of paganism controlled the church. Her doctrines, ceremonies, and superstitions were incorporated into the faith and worshipers of the professed followers of Christ. Now, in my opinion, nobody has summarized it better than that. Nobody. When you get a chance, read that again and read it slowly and pause and reflect on it. It's, it's fantastic. But it's so accurate. Now, what was it that had been compromised in order to do this? Paganize the church. She tells us people had to be kept, quote, in ignorance of the scriptures. She says, quote, the Bible would exalt God and place finite men in their true position. Therefore, its sacred truths must be concealed and suppressed. Great Controversy, page 51. That's why it happened. The paganizing of the church. The authority of the revealed word of God for the faith and life of believers was gradually replaced by the authority of the Roman church. And that authority vested in the popes, the bishops, the priests, and all of the rituals of the church that had developed was absolute. For example, it was so absolute that if you were convicted of heresy, the punishment was death, either by drowning or by being burned at the stake. Thousands of people were put to death that way. Now, the church didn't do it. They declared them guilty, but they used the secular authorities to do the execution. Now, it's true that only by the possession of faith can salvation be attained. But the church had reached a position where it claimed the own, to be the only repository of the true faith. So the Bible, which was supposed to be in the hands you know, of the believers, was suppressed. And the role of the priest was decisive 
for personal salvation. And you, you, could, you could not attain salvation apart from the mediation of the priest. By the way, I don't have this in my notes, but it just occurred to me. This is why the sanctuary message is so important. Because as Catholicism developed, the ministry of Christ before the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary was gradually transferred to earth in the rituals in which the priest conducts the mass every Sunday and in the process changes bread into the true body of Jesus and wine into the true blood of Jesus in what is called the sacrifice of the mass. That's why the sanctuary message is so important for us to know. Anyway, the role of the priest was decisive for personal salvation and the Bishop of Rome had become the central figure of religious authority. Now that took a long time, over centuries. And the Pope had become more powerful than any ruler in Europe. And for the ordinary person, that power and authority of the Pope was awesome. Did you know talking is hard work, makes you sweaty? <laughs> so, it was a time of great spiritual darkness and a church which God had designed to shine the light of his truth in the darkness. As fantastic as it sounds, had instead made the darkness even darker. And remember that a money economy had developed throughout the world and the finances of the church became as time went by involved in that medium of exchange in other words the church needed money to function but unfortunately the papacy went bankrupt and they had to raise money How could such funds be gotten from the local churches and the faithful people? The most lucrative method was called indulgences. That was, by the way, the primary reason that motivated Luther to write and nail his 95 theses on the wall, on the castle door in Wittenberg, castle church door. 
It was a brilliant idea when you think about it that played on the superstitions and fears of the people at that time. There was nothing wrong with the cause, for example, a lot, the money was used to support hospitals. What's wrong with that? To build bridges, to build churches. St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, you can see it today, was built largely from the profits of the sale of indulgences. But it was a diabolical method. The idea was that Christ and all the saints had more merits than people needed for their salvation. They had, excuse me, I said that wrong. They had more merits than they personally needed for their salvation. So there was, there was how should I say it, extra merits available. And these surplus merits were kept in a treasury by God and could be transferred to sinners at the discretion of the Pope by his authority and power. They could even be translated, transferred to the, to the dead who were in purgatory. By the way, which is a pagan idea. Nothing in scripture about that. You can't find it. It's not there. But this is what they believed. It's what they taught. And so that was epitomized by a priest by the name of Tetzel who came to Germany and he sold salvation. And it was reported that he would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So you could, if you're, you, you had loved ones that had died and they believed you didn't go right to heaven when you die like a lot of, do, a lot of people do, uh, but to purgatory, which was preparatory to heaven. And it's in purgatory that the dead were purged of their sinfulness. And you could, you could buy merits of the saints, these extra merits, to provide more merits for your dead loved ones. Now, with all that superstition and pagan thinking, you can imagine it worked. But Luther saw the devilishness of that. It was based on falsehood. None of it on the authority of the Bible. Neither purgatory nor indulgences or buying merits of the saints for your dead loved ones, none of that is supported by scripture. And unbelievable as it sounds today, this was possible because the people had been kept in ignorance of the scriptures. And that's precisely why the invention of movable type and the printing press was such a momentous event. What was behind it all? 
Well, Luther identified the source in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, as our ancient foe, whose craft and power are great. The prince of darkness grim. But he said, we tremble not for him. And we will not fear. For God has, has willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen. I love that hymn. I'm, I'm so glad that it's in our hymnal. Amen. Now, is it an over-dramatization to say that in the middle, at the beginning of the 16th century, it was a major spiritual crisis? Is it an over-dramatization to say that? I don't think so. Yeah, you see, it, it constituted the corruption of God's truth concerning the basic human condition of sin and its resolution. The very essence and the nature of the gospel of salvation was at stake. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, his son, has everlasting life, will not perish. Jesus said to his church, you are the light of the world. You, that means you and me, you are the light of the world. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Yeah. Not, not everybody understands the implications of that. You are the light of the world. But some people did. And before Luther was ever born, the seeds of the Reformation had been sown. There were people before Luther that were be beginning to study the scriptures and the truth was beginning slowly to emerge. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, verse, verse 7. The point is God would act and deal with this situation. And looking back on all of that, it's obvious that the time to speak had come. Amen. 
Why? What was at stake? What was the basic fundamental issue? God's truth was the issue. The word of God, the Bible. And if that's lost, everything is lost. That's why it's so critical. If that light does not shine, if you and I do not let that light shine through us, utter darkness prevails. And God will not allow that. He will not. John 1, 5, it's one of my favorite Bible verses, says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Because as the light shines, that light, the light of his word, as that light shines, the darkness cannot overcome it. As long as it shines, God will see to it that that light keeps shining. And by the way, that's, that's, that's what's behind the whole idea of the remnant church. That is precisely why the remnant church exists. So the Reformation had to happen. That's why Ellen White said, as I read yesterday, at Wittenberg, a light was kindled whose rays should extend to the uttermost parts of the earth and which was to increase in brightness to the close of time. General Great Controversy, page 126. So, 500 years ago, October 31, 1517, it was time to speak. Who would do the speaking? Who would kindle the light? As I mentioned, many voices had been heard slowly, many other voices began to be heard after Luther, beyond Luther, as we'll see as we go along. But who did God choose to light the flame? And what would be the spark? So we start talking about the man. Now, yesterday I said that uh, I don't have time to answer any questions. But one of you came up and spoke to me today, so I'm going to close a little early in case you would like to 
ask a question or make a comment. But before I do that, I want to begin talking about the man. By the way, I want to say to you that Luther is still one of my spiritual heroes. You, as you'll see as we go along, Luther was not right on everything. On some things, he was very wrong. But on a lot of things, he was very right. And God used him mightily and powerfully at that time. And we need to acknowledge that. And as I was becoming an Adventist, I was so, so happy to read the chapters in the Great Controversy on the Reformation. Powerful chapters. And she says very little negative things about Luther. Although there are things that could be said that are negative. But she prefers to focus on the positive. I like that. And I like that. Anyway, the time to speak had come. And the light was kindled. It happened on October 31, 1517. Because Luther had recognized by an intense study of Romans and Galatians that the very gospel itself was being abused and distorted by the church of all, of all instruments. I've often thought, what, would, what was he thinking? You know, here he was a loyal son of the church, given his life to monasticism, but the director of the monastery, Staupitz, asked him to, to have classes on the Bible, of all things. So he started to research the scriptures in order to prepare to teach the Bible. And can you imagine how he, what happened to him, how he began to think and feel as he discovered things in the scriptures that were in contradiction to what the church was teaching, the church that he loved. So he began to prepare a list of grievances and wrote them out and then nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg, which was the practice in those days. If you wanted to have a debate about something, this is what you did. And uh, they came to be called the 95 Theses because there was a list of 95 propositions that were intended for the purpose of calling for a debate. Let's talk about this. Let's discuss this. His goal was to reform the church. He had no intention of leaving the church. His motive was to help to reform it. To bring it back in, in line with the scriptures. And he wanted to do that by exalting the word of God. And when you really think about it, that took a lot of guts on his part. Who was he anyway? He was a nobody. A, a, a monk, a simple priest, 
And as I already mentioned, I think the spark was the practice of indulgences. And when he began analyzing that, he began to question the power of the Pope. For example, he began to think, if the Pope truly had the power to release souls from purgatory, why in the name of God's grace and mercy did he not free them? That's what bothered Luther. And then secondly, he discovered that God's word declares that forgiveness and peace comes to an individual by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Latin. That's what Romans says. We're justified by grace through faith. And he also began to realize that if you don't have that assurance, then you're lost. Even though the Pope might absolve your sins a million times, or the priest, you're still lost if you don't have that faith assurance. That was the fundamental issue. The power of the word as opposed to the power of the Pope. And Luther had no idea what he started on October 31, 1517. He just wanted to have a discussion. But as, as Ellen White puts it so marvelously, a light was kindled that day that was to shine through the whole world. And it did. It's supposed to. Now, Luther was born on November 10, 1483 in the city of Eisleben, I better shut up. But in this ecumenical age of ours, not much attention is given to either that or October 31, Reformation. We, when I was a Lutheran minister, we used to celebrate Reformation every year. Amen. They don't do it anymore. We used, there used to be articles in the paper, notices of special services. I looked in the Ironwood Globe, a local paper last year, the year before, the year before that, nothing. In fact, I asked the pastor who is now pastoring the church that I pastored before I came to Andrews. I said, are you folks going to celebrate uh, the Reformation? I don't see anything in the paper about it. He said, well, I would love to. He said, I've been trying to persuade 
persuade everybody, including the Catholics, that we should all get together and celebrate it. <laughs> I wish you could have been there to see my face. Oh, boy. All right. Any comments or questions? I think they will celebrate the Reformation ending when that bishop is, is installed in the ceremony of the Catholic Church. Some of you weren't here yesterday. You didn't hear that. There was an announcement in our local paper that the newly elected bishop of the Lutheran Synod in, involving the Upper Peninsula of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America that I used to be a part of is going to be installed as bishop in the Roman Catholic Cathedral in Marquette in October. And it also says that the presiding bishop of the ELCA, the whole church, is going to participate. It doesn't say that the presiding bishop is going to install the new bishop, but just participate. That's all it says. But you begin to wonder who then is going to do the installing of the Lutheran bishop. The Catholic bishop? Yeah, there are two Lutheran churches. The biggest one is called the Missouri Synod with headquarters in St. Louis. And the other one is the Wisconsin Synod. And they are the, probably the most conservative Lutheran churches. And neither one of those is a member of the Lutheran World Federation. So they're not a part of that. Yeah. By the way, um, the United Methodist Church in the United States has recently elected and I, I want to make sure I'm correct in saying this. Anyway, I won't say what I was going to say because I got to check it. But the United Methodist Church has voted to approve same-sex marriage. And one of the results of that is that the biggest, one of the biggest United Methodist churches in the United States, and I think it's in Mississippi, is leaving the denomination. So things are happening. We need to be alert as Seventh-day Adventists to cultural pressure. Yeah. There's an interesting story concerning the indulgences with Tetzel. Pardon? With Tetzel. The one who sold indulgences, Tetzel. Yeah. Uh, it seems that how the story went, two well-dressed gentlemen approached him one day in the marketplace and asked to purchase some pardons. He said, is it possible to purchase pardons in advance? 
Because he said, yes. So he said, we have an enemy we want to rob. <laughs> and so we want to purchase these pardons just in case we're killed and let the attempt for that. That's called the installment plan. <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to be sold in those indulgences. Yeah. A few days later, he was driving through the fort with his money chest. Two robbers came up and held him up at gunpoint and made off the chest. Well, they didn't get too far with that heavy chest, so they sent the authorities, the deputies, after them. They captured them, they brought them to the judge, they brought them to the judge and said, you don't need to condemn us. We've been pardoned for what we've done. And he said, that's impossible. Who pardoned you? The Pope. <laughs> impossible. Well, here's the pardons. So they produced the pardons. And uh, long story short, Chester got my chest back, the two were pardoned, and were set free. <laughs> United Methodist Church elects first openly gay bishop in defiance of church rules. There you go. Yeah. July 16. It was a female, was it? No, this one, this is last year. Okay. So maybe there's one this year. Oh, it is Karen Alimito. Yeah, women, they were ordaining women as priests, right? Now, if we don't go along with that, what's going to happen? We're going to be accused of being unjust, unkind, pardon? Legalist? Bigots, yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to be ready for that if we stay true to the word. Now, does God said, the word says, God so loved the world. Does that include everybody? Yes. So, if the light shines through us, we are to love people. Even, I hate to say this because we're all sinners, but even sinners. You know? Is our church door open for everybody to come in and yes. worship and hear the word and enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Yes. But the line is drawn when it comes to baptism. Because we believe the Bible teaches that when you receive Jesus as your Savior and he comes to dwell within the Holy Spirit begins the process of sanctification, growth in holiness and righteousness and godly living that is in harmony with his word. In other words, we're not just forgiven for past sins. We are also prepared and, and empowered for victory over sin. But what do we do if we accept everybody into our church and the transvestites come in and they want to use our bathrooms. What do we do? <laughs> Put a big sign on the door that says men and women. Somebody asked me once about that transgender business and 
you know. And by the way, I just heard on the news the other day of a, a, a person has come out, a scholar, quote unquote, who identifies himself with a hippopotamus. <laughs> now, this goes beyond transgender to trans-species. I mean, come on. Come on. I don't want to make fun, but... Anyway, somebody asked me about that once, and how do you know the difference, you know, whether you're male or female? And I, I answered kind of humorously. I shouldn't do that, I guess. But I said, take your clothes off and stand in front of the mirror, and you'll know. <laughs> but it's strange. It's a, gender is identified today by a lot of folks not uh, biologically, but in terms of identification. What I think about myself. Dr. Phil Mills had the best response I've ever heard to that. Somebody commented about uh, Bruce Jenner, who had uh, surgery and is now known as Caitlin. Have you seen him on her on TV? His response was, he is what he was when he was born. What he is now is a mutilated male. He was right. It's, you know, the whole point is we're living in a crisis time, just like they faced in the 16th century when the Reformation was born. We have issues that we have to deal with as a church. And the question is, are we going to be true to the word? Or do we follow the way people think? Or the way they feel? The way we feel? That's the issue. It was the issue then. It's the same, it's the same issue today. Oh boy, I got to go. <laughs> Somebody say a quick prayer, please. to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.